As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, teach us good judgment and knowledge, for we believe in your commandments. You are good and you do good, so teach us your statutes, so that we may keep your precepts with our whole hearts, delight in your law, and learn your will in Christ. And hear us, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in God's word to the gospel of Mark chapter 7, Mark chapter 7. If you're visiting with us, we're glad to have you here this morning. We've been considering a series through the book of Mark, and we've come to Mark chapter 7. I put in the bulletin that we were going to be looking at verses 1 through 13, but that was going to be biting off more than I could chew. Um, So we're just going to consider the first eight verses together and take up the rest of the text next week, next time, Lord willing. So Mark chapter 7, beginning our reading at verse 1, it's on page 1071 of many of our pew Bibles. Mark is the second book of the New Testament between Matthew and Luke. So Mark chapter 7, beginning our reading at verse 1 and reading through verse 8. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Um, One of the things that we have noticed about Mark's gospel as we've gone along, particularly in this section, is how he seems to be taking the opportunity to tell the story of our Lord Jesus Christ in such a way that he really emphasizes the themes of a new exodus. That Jesus has in many ways come to lead his people on that promised new exodus that God's people were taught to look for from the writings of the prophets looking forward to that day when they would make a new beginning with their God that would not come to a crashing end like it did in the wilderness the first time, but a new exodus that would begin wonderfully and keep going in a wonderful way under the leadership of their God. And that's what Jesus has been doing in this section, showing that he has come to lead God's people on a new exodus. He's done this by feeding the 5,000 in the wilderness place so that God's people ate bread from heaven, He's done this by making a path through the sea, walking on the water, just as God made a path through the sea for God's people at the Red Sea. Uh, These are new Exodus themes, and when God's people went to the Exodus and began their trip through the wilderness, where did they go? Uh, Where was the first place they were headed? Well, they went to Mount Sinai to receive the law of God. 
Um, And so it's not surprising that having done these other things that bring to mind Exodus themes, that Jesus would now focus the attention of his ministry on the law. And he does that in, in this setting of being confronted by these religious authorities. They think they are the definitive interpreters of God's law. They think they sit in Moses' seat. Um, And the Lord is coming to show them that actually he is the one who is not only the right and true authoritative interpreter of the law, he is the Lord of the law who himself has given it. And so this is going to be an occasion for the Lord to enter into an extended dialogue over the meaning of the law and the true meaning of the law. And will remind us that one of the things our Lord Jesus Christ has come to do is restore in righteousness what was ruined in rebellion, including how God, God's people received their Lord's law. And so the Lord is going to teach us something important about the law and use this occasion of being confronted to teach us about true purity, about sincere piety, and about fresh joy. And that's how we want to think about this passage this morning. True purity, sincere piety, and fresh joy. Um, This is an occasion where they confront Jesus over purity. And Jesus is going to have an opportunity to teach us about true purity. This is the second time in the book of Mark we've been told that scribes from Jerusalem have come. And we said last time in chapter 3 when they came to confront Jesus that these are sort of the religious heavy hitters, right? These are the people in Jerusalem. They really know what they're talking about. Um, It would sort of be like if you read something saying that there were Jesuits sent from the Vatican, right? Those would be the heavy hitters, the people that are really supposed to know something. Um, And that's what we have again, these, these religious heavy hitters, scribes from Jerusalem who come, and they come with this criticism of our Lord's practice. Once again, it's, a, it's an argument about cleanliness. It's an argument about purity. Uh, the last time they confronted Jesus, they also confronted him over an issue of cleanness. When he was driving out demons and people were asking the question, by what power does he drive out these demons? You remember it was the opinion of these religious leaders, these really sharp tools, um, that he was doing this by the power of Satan. And they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So this is not the first time that the issue of cleanliness has been raised. Uh, this time it's not the allegation that he has an unclean spirit, but that he maintains an attitude of uncleanness towards how his disciples behave. Uh, he, they confront him over this question of purity, over this question of ritual cleanness, because these religious scribes notice that Jesus' disciples do not wash their hands before they eat. Now, boys and girls, this passage is not a justification for you not to wash your hands before you eat. If your mom and dad said, now go wash your hands, you can't say, well, Jesus' disciples didn't wash their hands. Um, they weren't washing their hands to make them clean from dirt, boys and girls. They believed that there was some kind of ritual washing. Um, Kind of like when we do a baptism, we use water, but it signifies something else. It signifies the cleansing of of Christ's blood and spirit. That's what their washing with water was meant to signify, something else. And the tradition of the elders held that you had to do that because when you were outside, you might have touched someone who was unclean or touched something that was unclean. And you might not have gotten dirt on your hands, but you would have contracted their ritual impurity. 
And so this was a ritual washing where you would take a handful of water and just wash it over your hands as a sign, I'm washing off whatever impurity I might have contracted uh, as I was out. Now, we're really helped here by the fact that Mark is writing to people who are not familiar with these traditions. So if you're wondering, what is this all about? So were Mark's original audience. They would have been wondering, what is this really about? And that's why Mark says what he says in verses 2 through 4. Um, Or verses 3 and 4, he said, The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come in from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Again, this is not because they were neat freaks or had to, you know, were germaphobes and had to clean. This is all ritual washing. The idea being we're trying to get any ritual uncleanness that's come in off of everything. Um, And Mark says, to anyone who doesn't understand this, this was the tradition of the elders. Uh, Which, of course, raises the next question. What what does he mean when he says this was the tradition of the elders? Uh, What was the tradition of the elders? Um, What does that mean? Well, not the written word of God, right? That was what the law required. The tradition of the elders was an oral tradition of teaching that grew up around the law. And the thinking sort of went this way. Well, the law, it's a very serious thing to break the law. And we don't want people breaking the law. So let's put a fence around the law to make sure people don't get near to breaking the law. Let's think about the law, and then let's think by implication what the law might also be teaching us. Where it's not saying something, but it's really teaching something. Um, That was how the oral tradition developed, as a kind of fence around the law that was taught, trying to say, now what does the law imply? Uh, Not what the law says, but what might it imply to us. And of course, once you begin to do that, what happens? The fence you're writing, you're trying to put around the law becomes like a law itself. Um, And there was this huge oral tradition that grew up. I like how one commentator put it, in areas where the law was silent, tradition was vocal, drawing the conclusions felt to be implicit in the requirements of the written code. Right? God didn't say anything here, but we think this is what he is implying. And, of course, this huge oral tradition grew up out of that way of thinking, and that's how all these ideas for washing came up. Um, I think it kind of went this way. The law only required a few kinds of washing, mostly for priests when they were going about their holy priestly duty. So the law really only says the the priests need to do this specifically when they're going to go minister among the holy things. And so you can see how teachers of the law might come along and say, well, you know, the law doesn't say anything about us doing any washing. But what does the law say? You should really wash when you're going to do holy service. And brothers and sisters, aren't we really all involved in holy service? And if the priests wash when they do their holy service, shouldn't we wash before we do our holy service? I mean, aren't we all priests in a sense? Aren't we all in our whole lives doing holy things? Shouldn't we all be washing? Right? Maybe I have a future as a Pharisee, right? This is, you can see how this works, how you just begin to say, you know, just think about the implication. Think how this grows up. But before too long, you have people who are experts in this kind of thing. Um, And you need them because no one knows this except for the people who came up with it. 
And who are the people who oversee this huge oral tradition that grows up around the law? It's the scribes. And particularly the scribes from Jerusalem are the people who are really experts in all of this tradition. And that's how this controversy comes up. That's in the context which this comes up. They are experts in what ought to be done, and they see that Jesus' disciples don't follow the tradition they've come up with. They watch them going in from being outside and not washing their hands ritually before they eat, and so they pose the question, why don't your disciples follow, why don't they walk according to the tradition of the elders? Why aren't your disciples concerned for purity? And of course, Jesus knows what they really mean by that question. Their question is really, Jesus, why don't you care about purity? Can you imagine saying that to Jesus? You don't care about purity? Um, No wonder they get a harsh rebuke from our Lord for what they say to him. But before we think about that rebuke, I think we need to really see this in the context in which this story comes to us. Um, This context that has caused them to ask the question about cleanness and about purity. What was Jesus doing right before this section? One of the things, one of the values of going to seminary is you learn that chapter 6 comes before chapter 7. These are the important things that you learn. What happened at the end of chapter 6? What was Jesus doing? Um, Even if you don't remember, you can just look at the the heading in our English Bibles. Jesus heals the sick in Gennesaret. Uh, this, This passage comes right after that. Some commentators have scratched their head and said, what is the connection between the healing work that Jesus did and this this argument here. Some people have even gone so far as to say there's really no connection. This is Mark just kind of going into a whole new area with no relation to the past. I don't think that's right at all. What is the connection between this passage and that passage? It's this. Where was Jesus doing all his healing? Do you remember where people were being brought on their mattresses from all over the region to be healed by Jesus. Look what chapter 6, verse 56 says. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that he might touch just the fringe of his garment, and whoever touched the fringe of his garment was healed. And where have the disciples presumably come from when they're not washing their hands? It's from these marketplaces. It's particularly coming in from the marketplace, because that's how Mark explains it to us. Right? Verse 4, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. There's a connection here being made. And I think it's vital to see the connection between Jesus' healing ministry and this question of purity that comes up, because it really shows how blind and petty these religious leaders are. Where has Jesus been coming from when they begin to criticize him? They've just come in from healing people in the marketplace. Whoever has touched him has been made clean. 
right? Not just ritually clean. Not just clean in a ritual sense, but in a true, pure, physical, and spiritual sense. Disease has been driven out. Right? The Lord has been curing the effects of the fall in the world. The faith is making them well. The power of Christ is making them well. Truly cleansing, truly purifying. And these religious leaders see that. And he comes in from the marketplace and they don't wash their hands. And they say, well, you don't really care very much about purity, do you? We should be saying, look at the people he's healed. That's how much he cares about purity. He doesn't care about purity as you define it. He cares about making people really pure, about really cleansing, about really making people well. He's come to restore in righteousness what rebellion has ruined. That's who he is. And you ask him, don't you care about purity? Don't you care that someone out there might have touched you and made you unclean? What a foolish thing to say to the Lord whose touch makes well, whose touch cleanses the unclean, who's come to restore and make impure sinners pure before his Father. What a thing to say to him, don't you care about purity? He's been doing nothing but purifying since he came to the earth. He will purify his people. That's why he has come. And to say to him, you don't care about purity, is about the most ridiculous thing you can say. It shows the pettiness and the blindness of these religious leaders. That they think they care more about purity than the Lord of glory cares about purity. Uh, It's in this occasion of knowing what true purity is that Jesus exposes them as people who only pretend to have sincere piety. Uh, The Lord not only has demonstrated in his earthly ministry what it means that the kingdom of God purifies the world, but he also teaches here important things about what sincere piety looks like by exposing the insincerity of the piety of these scribes and Pharisees. It's in this context that they receive this terrible rebuke from the Lord for their foolish question. Do they have a sincere piety? No, the Lord says, what are they really? They are hypocrites. That word is an interesting word in in Greek. It can simply mean a stage actor. It can simply mean just someone who is a pretender. And that helps us to see what it means in this context. They're not really religious people. They pretend to be religious people. Their religion is all counterfeit. It's not real. Um, And Jesus exposes their hypocrisy, interestingly, by pointing them to the word of God. Um, It shows the genius and the wisdom of our Lord that when these religious scribes come trying to burden him down or trip him up, with their oral tradition, what does he respond with? Not simply his argument, but with the word of God. Right? He says, it is written. 
when they come and say, but the, what the elders have said. He says, I don't much care what the elders have said. Listen to what my father has said. What is not just me saying what my father has said, but what the prophet said my father has said. The written word of God. Right? This is the great principle that built the Reformation. This principle from God's word. It doesn't matter what men say. It doesn't matter how great the men are who've said it. It doesn't matter how many of them are who've said it. It doesn't matter how long they've been saying it. What has God said? And that's what Jesus comes and does. He says, well, you know, that's all well and good, your oral tradition. But here's what the Lord said. Here's what is written. And what is written, he quotes from Isaiah 29, 13. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus is saying what was true for the blind leaders in Isaiah's day is just as true for the blind leaders in my day. You know exactly what the religious leaders of Jerusalem knew when Isaiah was prophesying, which is 2% of nothing at all. You don't know anything, just as they didn't know anything. And this would have had a particular impact to people who knew the scriptures really well. Because for Jesus to quote Isaiah 29 against them, they would have recognized he's digging down into one of the most critical accusatory sections of Isaiah against the leaders of God's people. This isn't just quoting the Old Testament against them. This is quoting one of the most damning sections of the Old Testament against them. Um, Isaiah 28 through 23, those chapters contain some of the most sustained attack on the nation's leaders in the whole book of Isaiah. So this is right in this sustained attack on the nation's leaders. And Isaiah 29 specifically was a prophecy of woe against Jerusalem. It was a prophecy of woe against the leaders from Jerusalem and their inability to comprehend God's truth. That they were blind and deaf to what God wanted. And because the leaders were blind and deaf, they led their people into darkness and destruction. Right before this verse that Jesus quotes, the, the, the situation of God's people is, It said, well, here's the book, read it. And someone says, well, it's sealed, I can't read it. Okay, so the people who can read it won't. Then you take to other people and they say, I don't know how to read. And that's Isaiah's picture of of what the situation is. There are people who can read the book who won't, won't be bothered, and people who can't read it at all. And these are the people who are in charge. These are the people who are supposed to be leading God's people. They're blind. And their blindness is seen in their outward actions and their inward heart and the disconnect between the two. Under the effect of God's judgment, as one, pers- one commentator put it, they are blinded and given over to their own wisdom and consequently destruction. They pursue their own rebellious plan while pretending to be loyal to God. And that's what Jesus is saying. You're, you're just like those leaders that Isaiah is talking about 
who are blind and deaf to the will of God and who do things only because they want them done, not because God wants them done. You teach as doctrines the commandments of men. Do you see the similarity between who Isaiah is describing and who Jesus is talking to? It's seen in the fact that there is the Lord they claim to serve standing in front of them, doing the mighty acts of God, driving out demons, driving out illness. And they're so blind to what he's there to do that they question, does he care about cleanness? They're so committed to their own rebellion. They're so committed to their own cause and seeking their own purposes that they have nothing to do with the Lord. And he says to them, listen to what Isaiah says about that kind of piety. Where the heart is disconnected from what you're doing. And you're not following what God wants, you're following what men want. In vain do they worship me. It has no purpose. It has no power. It's vanity. It's nothing. That's what Jesus is saying. Your worship is all for nothing. All your devotion to these traditions, it's all for nothing. You're not honoring the Lord in this. You're honoring only yourselves. Your tradition. The Pharisees and scribes is represented the exact kind of useless worship that has nothing to do with God, which is the opposite of sincere piety. We spend time washing our hands and our cups and our pitchers and our couches. They're all very clean. But the heart is untouched. It's untouched by any of this. And what's worse, what have they taught the people about the unclean world? It's something to be separated from. It's something to stay away from. When you see uncleanness, run home and wash your hands. Make sure you get it off of you. Get away from those unclean people. Right? It's a way you begin to think about the world if you operate this way. Everyone out there is unclean. We need to get away from them. Is that how God wanted his people thinking about the unclean world? It is unclean out there. Don't misunderstand me. It's unclean out there. But does God's people want his people withdrawing from that uncleanness? I think the church needs to hear what Jesus is saying. Needs to understand that picture that's being taught us because we can be tempted in our day and age to look out at the uncleanness in the world and to be so scared of it that we engage in a kind of bunker mentality. Let's just close ranks, close the windows and doors, try to stay inside and just kind of try to hold the fort till Jesus comes. Or if you're really crazy about it, let's all move to the Pacific Northwest and buy AR-15s and defend ourselves in the hill country waiting for the destruction of the country. Is that what God is teaching us, people? The world is really unclean, so withdraw from it? Is that what Jesus is demonstrating by coming into the world? No, what does Jesus teach us? What Jesus is teaching very, cle very clearly to us is this world is unclean. 
This world is filled with impurity. It's filled with the damage that sin has done and the wreck and ruin of the misery of sin. And I've come to cleanse it out, Jesus says. I have not come to withdraw from the world for fear that its uncleanness will rub off on me. I've come to bring the holiness of the kingdom of God to bear on this unclean world. And what happens when the king brings his kingdom to bear on the unclean world? It drives the impurity out. The sick are healed. The demon-possessed are set free. Sinners come to life by the work of the Lord. He has come to bring the hope and the fresh joy that Isaiah also saw. Because Isaiah said there's no hope with the leaders like this. There's no hope for a people like this. There's no hope in ourselves. Where can our hope be found? He did say there's a day of hope coming in that same chapter. He said there was a day of hope coming. Isaiah 29, 18 and 19 talk about that hope. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. And the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. Our Lord sees the world as an unclean place into which he's come to bring the cleansing power of his kingdom. He does not recoil at the uncleanness he finds. He brings the power of his kingdom to bear on it. And that's what he set us out to do. To be in the world. Not to be of the world, but to be in the world. And why? So we would help to have a purifying influence in this world. To be the salt the world needs. To be the light the world needs. To bring the cleansing power of the kingdom to bear. That's why Jesus can't abide this fact that his father's law has been clouded over with all of this human tradition and misunderstanding. He wants it cleared away so that it will operate as what it is meant to be, a law of love. A law that says, go out and love your God. Go out and love your neighbor. A law that's restored to its rightful place. Driving sinners to see their need for a Savior and giving us a guide for how we thank God for the deliverance that we've found. The world needs to be loved. That's what an unclean world needs. And we have the privilege of being included in our Lord's kingdom and being sent out into the world to extend that cleansing influence of His kingdom to the world. We can't do what He did. You can't go out into the marketplace after the service and heal the sick. But we can love our neighbors and bring the influence of the kingdom to bear on them in that way. We can't heal the sick, heal those who are suffering, but we can often help them by loving our neighbors. We can't go and drive out demons the way Jesus could drive out demons but we can go and bring the truth of God to bear and love on our neighbors to help them in their spiritual oppression. We've been given the gospel. 
We can bring that out. That's principally done in the preaching and teaching ministry of the church, but each of us goes out with the gospel in word and deed to love our neighbors. Right? We, we have the opportunity to share from time to time with people about the good news of the kingdom and all of its sin-destroying, soul-saving power. And we have the opportunity to show the gospel in our deeds. Right? To show what it means to belong to the kingdom of God. To show the influence the kingdom of God has in the lives of those who earnestly seek him. We show the love of the kingdom of God when we love our neighbor as we've been called to do. That's what these religious leaders missed. As Jesus said in verse 8, you grasp on to these traditions, but in doing so you let go of God's command. And what he's announcing is the Lord has sent another leader from Jerusalem, from the heavenly Jerusalem, to open eyes, to see the truth, to lead them out of darkness into his marvelous light, to shed forth abroad the cleansing power of his kingdom. So that his people would be concerned about true purity and sincere piety and obtain that fresh joy that comes from coming into the kingdom of God. I'll end with this quote from an Old Testament commentator who was commenting on the sad condition that's, that's expressed in Isaiah 29. He said, this is perhaps as sad a picture as is to be found anywhere in the Old Testament. He goes on to say, although in its entirety the nation turned its back upon him, in his gracious wisdom God preserved alive, even in this nation, those that feared his name. And in the fullness of time sent forth his Son, around whom there would be gathered those who loved his appearing and who would be truly a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And even more, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that they would proclaim the excellencies of him who called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. What have the Pharisees been saying? You know, all of life is a holy service. That's why it's so important to wash. And Jesus was saying, no, all of life is a holy service. That's why it's important to have your heart cleansed and have the spirit-wrought power at work in your heart so the law of God would live in you and work out in your life. It's two different religions. And what Jesus is calling us to is so much better, so much greater, has so much more potential to be transformative in the world, to love the Lord, with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves and out of that love to work and to reach out in an unclean world. It's through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and the empowering work of his spirit that fresh joy is brought to this world. May God work in us so that his law would live in us in a grateful service to him and that the world would know us by our love and therefore know our God. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, how much we know our 
uncleanness and impurity, how black and dark our souls truly are. We thank you that you have sent your Son into the world to save us from our sins, to cleanse us and make us white as snow in him. We thank you that he has done that by the power of his word and his spirit to bring fresh joy to his people and as those who know him. Empower us, Lord, to live lives of grateful service, not to try to earn something from you, but in gratitude for all you've done for us to show forth your love in the world. We know the world is unclean. It's an unholy place. We pray that you would enable us to be salt and light in this world, that by the love we have for you and the love that we have for neighbor, a true heart religion that works itself out through our hands, that we might show forth the glories of your kingdom and that we would testify to the Lord we serve who came to purify this world. And may we labor in the hope that a day is coming and that soon when he will come and cleanse everything that is evil out of this world. All of the sin, all of the misery. And Lord, may we look forward with with hope for that day when the joy will be complete. Hear us and help us by your spirit to live in grateful service to him until that great day dawns. And hear us, we pray in the name of your son. Amen.